growing up children you dream of being superheroes right we all watch that and that impact that one person is making when they walk in or fly in or however it is so this pandemic has made us healthcare providers really superheroes and i think we do our job honestly it humbles me welcome to the show me futures podcast series brought to you by Mizzou's office of student engagement my name is James Kim, and I'm here with co-host Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, a historian of medicine in the history department at the University of Missouri. Her research includes the history of medicine in early and modern Europe. We'll be your co-hosts for today's podcast discussing the future of COVID-19 in the field of medicine. This is the first of our four-part series in our discussion of the future after COVID-19 in Missouri. We have two special guests joining us today, who each have clinical experience with the treatment of COVID and its impact on two of Missouri's hospitals. Our first special guest is Liz Ellison, who is a registered nurse at a teaching hospital's 36-bed intensive care unit. She supervises other nurses on her team as she does her rounds and also teaches nursing students during their clinicals. Thanks for being out here with us, Liz. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our other special guest is Dr. Sophia Nadenoff, who specializes in pulmonary critical care medicine and is an assistant professor with St. Louis University School of Medicine. She leads the pulmonary embolism response team while doing rounds and teaches residents and med students. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Nadenov. It is great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, let's get started. Dr. Bowers, how about you start our discussion by telling us a little bit about how you see the future of medicine after this pandemic? Okay, thanks, James. Uh, it's I'm delighted to be here, and uh, delighted to have this conversation. Um, I'll say, as a historian of epidemics, and I've been working in this field of history for about 20 years, it has been really eye-opening to experience this firsthand and to make the connections uh, on a really personal level between what I've studied in terms of public health reactions to epidemics in the past and what we're experiencing today. So it it really is. Uh, changing perspectives uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, I think one thing that I would just start off by saying is that if we sort of combine the past and the future, uh, I do think that this is an epidemic that is really going to have some pretty lasting effects on a wide range of things about culture, society, and medicine, certainly, um, in part because this is really something unprecedented for many generations. And looking at the past, a lot of epidemics that were experienced were part of sort of ongoing um, continual series of outbreaks of different diseases. If we uh, think about influenza or cholera or plague or some of the more ancient diseases. And we've really been in a, a unique position of uh, not having this kind of vast epidemic really since maybe the mid 20th century. Uh, modern medicine has done a great deal to uh, prevent these kind of global outbreaks. So uh, I do think that we'll see some really lasting changes. This is a, a pretty historic and dramatic uh, event that we're going through. So I'm anxious to uh, talk to our panelists and see where they see medicine headed for the future. Thank you, Dr. Bowers. Next, Liz and Dr. Nadenov, I'd like to ask each of you, how have your jobs been impacted by COVID-19? So I think that the biggest effects kind of fall into two camps, and that is from a clinical perspective, and then just how the hospital is run on a more, I don't want to say business, but on a more um, 
broad and kind of even stepped back from the clinical perspective. So from the clinical side of things, we're constantly have been learning and evaluating throughout the last month, month and a half on how we are going to handle and treat these patients. And I think that we are really well equipped to take care of things like sepsis and ARDS, which stands for acute respiratory distress syndrome and other infectious diseases. We have those types of processes in place as far as interventions go, but COVID-19 is a new disease process for us. And so we're not quite sure as far as what matching the appropriate interventions with COVID-19 and and we've got the puzzle pieces, but we still haven't put the whole puzzle together yet. And then from a hospital standpoint, um, my workflow is really different because a lot of normal things like patient teaching and use of PPE and other resources, that has really dramatically changed. Right now, the hospital that I work in, we're not allowing any visitors in And patient teaching, especially in the acute care world, is so much easier when you have families and loved ones at the bedside and you can kind of explain and show as you teach them what it is that we're doing and the different interventions that we're um, using. So that piece looks really different because we're doing a lot on technology and phone calls that we normally would do face-to-face. And then again, I talk a little bit about resources. That piece looks really different. Um, and we're still determining uh, appropriate processes. We want to keep staff safe, uh, but we also want to be good stewards of the resources that we have right now when it comes to masks and gloves and goggles and making sure that we're doing right by the nurses and, and by our staff. Um, but then also making sure we'll have, you know, if this continues six months down the road, we need to have enough uh, for that timeline as well. Thanks, Liz. That's a lot of insight. And doctor, I would love to see what your side of the story sounds like. Yeah, that's some uh, great insight indeed, uh, Liz. Thank you for sharing that with us. My job has definitely changed. It has become more challenging. And uh, there are many barriers and steps that exist in uh, donning and doffing that uh, we didn't have to do before. And it has made the process cumbersome. The most difficult part, being a physician on the bedside and not being able to provide a clear um, treatment to your patient, uh, I think is the most challenging aspect of my job at this time. And uh, though I'm an optimist, so I must say that at the same time, there is a lot of collective effort amongst different countries, actually, for this rapid sharing of information and coming up with the protocols and trials, et cetera, that they're, they're putting in together and work together, which we have not seen in our lives, that one thing is connecting the whole world together and all the barriers of information traveling are uh, to the minimal uh, at this time. Then there are challenges on a personal level. So many physicians are living with this fear of bringing the disease to their families and taking measures, and I would say making sacrifices to make sure that that doesn't happen. I'm an optimist, so I must say that um, nothing else has uh, brought us together like this. Um, 
The entire world is affected by this disease. And really, physicians from China, Italy, United States, United Kingdom, people are really working together to find answers and get to the bottom of this uh, disease. So that's that's the beautiful thing, um, that force of uh, collective effort. If I may ask, um, I, I would just follow up on something that you were talking about, again, on the positive side. And I wonder if you see some of this collaborative, international collaborative, but also kind of local collaborative work uh, continuing in, in the light of other challenges as well. That's a great point, and I sincerely hope this this continues. We just were never pushed to do it, and now we have been. And as uh, clinicians, physicians, and healthcare providers, I think we had a need for it, and uh, we have tapped into it, and this is a beautiful thing. I completely agree. I think now that we've had a taste of what that type of collaboration and partnership looks like, it's going to be really hard to go back to our silos. That's not... I don't anticipate that for our healthcare system that I work in either. And nursing is similarly at times kind of siloed, just like physicians. Once you sort of get into your specialty, um, you really stay within that. But I think that from a nursing standpoint, across the nation, we're hearing very similar conversations. I don't foresee that a year down the road, now that we've seen this type of partnership, we would go back. And Liz, I think it's really inspiring to see that the whole field will be more collaborative. I know that a lot of inefficiencies in the industry come from a lack of effective communication between like providers. And I just hope that that's one positive thing that comes out of it. But I want to come back into more of a clinical aspect. So I volunteer at an urgent care center, and I know that we've started to use telehealth. And I've heard that other hospitals have, as well and I just wanted to hear on your opinions of how well telehealth is working or whether you'll see it being more of a common occurrence um, after the pandemic. So telehealth I'm very familiar with. I've dealt with it many times, uh, taken care of patients remotely many times, mostly in the context of intensive care. Like, you know, mostly people incorporated telehealth after hours that, okay, you have intensives during the daytime, but I go pick up that shift, you know, 7 to 7, uh, p.m. to a.m., and then I take care of that patient afterwards. I have not used telehealth as outpatient until recently because, or because of fear of social distancing. Our patients are not coming to clinics, so I'm doing all visits virtually on Zoom using this software and talking to uh, patients, following up on them. Yes, I cannot listen to their lungs. Yes, I cannot listen to their heart and, you know, uh, give them a hug or uh, touch their shoulders, stuff like that, if I need to. Um, but I can talk to them. I can see how comfortable or uncomfortable they are, how their breathing is. There are many things you can do, and we've been utilizing it um, almost on a weekly basis, and I see that growing even more. And many of the hospitals that I'm familiar with uh, are using telehealth in a patient. For example, you can do many things outside the room. The patient in the room has the video and the audio established that you can communicate. Not every time I have to use a PPE, use all that equipment. Imagine otherwise, every time I have to go in the room, I have to use the mask again. I have to use the do you know, every process of dressing in, going in again and again. Um, and we go into the patient's room uh, many times, as uh, Liz can uh, you know, um, uh, tell you. So I, I see telehedison playing a very major role in the coming future. And again, we were pushed to 
uh, by this pandemic to evaluate our resources and start using them promptly. And we could do it. We just never were pushed to uh, assess our own capabilities. And we have, this is not going anywhere. Patients love it. I followed up on a patient who was sitting in Arizona, sitting outside, talking to me. I, she said, this is great. I don't have to drive to the hospital. I don't have to, um, uh, w- you know, park my car, wait in the waiting room. You gave me this time and I log in and you're there to talk to me and I can see you. She said, this is great. And I can still be in Arizona and not have to come up, but I know you touch base with me. We talked about my medication, my health. I feel reassured that I'm okay. What tests are needed in six months? And there's more acceptance from administration that, okay, they need to invest in this and figure it out. And this has many roles and this is a tool. And this day and age, we got to use it. I I totally agree with that. We, the Even when it comes to talking with families and loved ones who can't come into the hospital. We're using iPads that are mounted on top of stands that we can bring into the room. And even if um, the patient isn't totally, like if they're on a ventilator and they're a little bit sedated, we're able to still kind of have that face-to-face conversation and show them some of those things, but we're just doing it in a completely different capacity. And in some way that, just like you said, you know, we're we're not introducing other organisms into that room. We're still being very safe. We're decreasing the use of our PPE and we're using technology to our benefit to still stay very connected. Um, and we have never been forced to do that up until this point because why would you change a process that seems to be working until the process is no longer um, able to be carried on? So I completely agree with everything that you just said. And Liz, you brought a very good point. I cannot, I mean, this is so valuable about what uh, Liz just said. Imagine no visitors in the family. Guys, I mean, patients who are maybe can die of a disease and the family, they cannot see their loved ones and all they hear is us with accents and different, you know, unfamiliar faces and masks and gowns. Imagine, imagine as a human being, I mean, if anybody, you want to be with your loved one holding your hand and, and dying, not, not, not with strangers, not in an environment which is the most, you know, uh, I would say not pleasing at all to your senses at that time and difficult time. And even if, okay, you're not dying, but you're severely critically ill, those connections. So Liz has, we have used this modality for that. And I think she brought a great point of mentioning this here that, that, using an iPad, having them see their uh, family member, communicate, talk, this this is uh, priceless, really. It's very, very important. Yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement. It just seems that telehealth is full of benefits. But thank you. So I would like to broaden the scope of our conversation here more into um, a statewide setting. So in 10 years from now, like how would you see hospitals in urban or rural areas being prepared for emergencies like this pandemic? I know you talked about how it's been a struggle to adapt to these new procedures, but how do you think that will change in 10 years? I love this question because that it's going to change. We know that we will never be the same after this. This has catalyzed a lot of things that we've already touched on within the conversation between collaboration and how we use technology. And so in 10 years, I think the conversation, for me, when I think about that 
Um, I immediately think about the tornado that happened in Joplin, actually this month, but in 2011. And a lot of things in my healthcare system changed after that event when it came to emergency preparedness and specifically weather-related events. We adopted um, backpacks that the healthcare, either nursing or physicians, um, could easily grab off the wall and take with them anywhere that had like basic supplies in it that we would be able to use in the event that a tornado hit the hospital that I work in. Um, we also developed all a whole system of plans and protocols of how to evacuate patients, not just ambulatory patients, but people who are hooked up to a ventilator and not able to speak or even really respond individually. And so like what we're nine years past that point, so much has changed from that. And I foresee similar things happening in the wake of COVID. So so we're talking, you know, supply management being stocked with appropriate amounts of PPE. But then also, you know, I'm not sure that having enough ventilators for a pandemic for years to come is a totally practical solution. But I think it's amazing the members of the community have been able to step up and we know a good example is is alcohol distilleries are making hand sanitizer and manufacturing companies like GM are converting over and able to make ventilators. And so even though we're the clinical people here, we have the support of, of our country and of our community in order to do what we need to do with resources that our neighbors are able to provide for us. Those are great points. Uh... Liz, if I can uh, add, I think uh, you kind of said that. I just want to put a different spin to it that I think what we have learned so far, um, and again, I don't think this process is ending anytime soon. I think this is a long-term ordeal. Um, So we will continue to learn. um, But it has highlighted this thing of coming together. So when we talk about 10 years from now, rural or urban hospitals, how prepared. I think the collective resource is important. So there should be some visualization of what exists, like as a state, as a, it shouldn't be a a fight amongst ourselves or amongst states. So whatever the central or the command center is, after that comes your, uh, you know, state-wise or however, I mean, I'm not a politician, but it makes sense to have some visualization of resources and then deployment of those resources where they needed the most. Some kind of an assessment of that and be prepared for that A, B, C, and D plan, a contingency plan. Uh, we definitely should be better prepared in 10 years compared to how we were at this time. And um, not to survive on this bare minimum. I mentioned that earlier because I think, again, it's one of those things that has been uh, revealed, I would say. I would use the word revealed to us that we were really functioning on bare minimum supplies, bare minimum number of uh, staff, bare minimum this or that. Uh, We have to look past that a little bit and have some kind of a plan because that just does not seem like an effective uh, means of taking care of uh, patients when we are met with the disaster of this uh, magnitude. I I completely agree with that. I I think 
we've learned and been exposed and and that is potentially a different conversation but we even talk about shortages in the pharmaceutical world and what happens when we have natural disasters hit places like Puerto Rico and what that looks like. I at, at the, was at the bedside when that happened um, and, and we saw huge shortages and just even things like normal saline and, and regular fluids and also different pharmaceuticals. And so that idea of allocating appropriate resources to the appropriate people, making sure that everyone has enough, no one has too much, no one has too little, that that's a really complex problem. And I certainly don't sit here and claim that I have the answer to that, but that is a good outcome that I think we should strive for. If I can jump in here with a little bit of a historian's perspective again, I would I would just add that I think we're we're really well positioned for moving in the future to be able to deal with crises because one we we do learn from the past, which is what uh, Liz was talking about. Um, you know, we have crises and and we figure out things that that work well, and so we we can implement these plans and we can we can try and you know a- adapt to that um, and. Again, as a historian, I'll put in the plug that we also have these uh, really useful and effective, very ancient techniques, and not everybody likes them. But the the isolation and the quarantine and the staying home is something that is hundreds of years old. Um, it is non-biomedical, but it is, in fact, as we're seeing, a very effective way to respond to crisis. So we can draw a little bit on history that way. But... We're also, I think, in a really effective position with the current technology. We were talking about telehealth and how useful it is and talking about um, the community response. So a a technological nimbleness to be able to uh, change production, uh, things like the 3D printing, which are becoming very useful in in many ways. So we kind of have, if I'm not being too optimistic, but I, I think we really have the best of drawing from the past, but also using uh, our very current knowledge and technologies to be able to um, continue to formulate these responses and to meet the future challenges. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm just blown away by everyone's optimism and um, strength in adapting to these crises. And I'm, I'm with you guys. I always thought I was the optimist, but to hear everyone else's response, that's also I'm looking forward and knowing that we can persevere in future crises with better preparation. That just, it really warms my heart. But to move the direction of this conversation towards an academic setting, um, Liz and Dr. Nadinov, I know that you both teach um, the rising nurses and doctors. And so I just wanted to ask about how do you think the future education of nurses and doctors might be impacted by the pandemic? I think it's, uh, <laughs> I just want to laugh uh, and, but say this, that had I known <laughs> that I'll be, you know, living this situation just like as it is right now, I would have paid more attention to those epidemiology and <laughs> community yeah, I, I second this. <laughs> lectures that, that I still remember my teacher and my lack of interest, I'm telling you, but <laughs> I did think about it. I'm like, I should have paid more attention to that lecture. I definitely think this should be part of curriculum. And I think if I have to make it uh, more relatable so they can learn from it and be better prepared or mentally process it one more time, you know, just kind of before you actually experience it. So definitely I would consider that this should be part of the curriculum. 
And like I already said, had I known. <laughs> I, I completely agree with Dr. Nadev about that. Um, I'm going to call it the free willy phenomenon, but all my friends in like 1993-94 wanted to be a marine biologist after they saw the movie Free Willy. And I think that students and young people who are in you know, school age, grade school, and high school, we're going to have a lot of people who are really interested in infectious diseases because they lived through COVID-19. And in some way, you know, I don't want to romanticize what's happening right now because this is anything but that. But I also think that this is going to spark interest and conversation in lots of people that are in a position to kind of determine what they want to do with the rest of their life. And these are going to be students that will want to participate and and find a cure and, and potentially have a huge impact on how we work with and deal with infectious diseases 20, 30, 50 years down the line. Well said, Liz. Well said. And also, I think, you know, as uh, growing up, children you dream of being superheroes, right? We all watch that and that impact that one person is making when they walk in or fly in or however it is. So this pandemic has made us healthcare providers really superheroes. And I think we do our job, honestly. It humbles me, but I want to just use this opportunity to say thank you to Liz. Honestly, nurses spend way more time in the patient's room than we do. It just, that's just how the setup is. I know when I write an order, I think twice, do I really want the sugar to be checked four times, Liz? Do I really want, you know, see, I, I think now, before I wouldn't think, if I, if I need it, I will still write it and I'll tell you, Liz, I'm sorry, I do need this blood sugar every, you know, if, I, if we have a DKA together, but I would, I would hold back because I think, I mean, you, you have to do so many things there and nursing, they, I've seen some, so much resilience because uh, people have revealed themselves. I love this quote, they say, uh, circumstances don't make you they reveal who you are i've seen some people fearful and say no i'm uncomfortable i'm not gonna do it and i've seen those who do whatever they need to do but walk in with 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 pride and do their job so i'm just taking and saying thank you to you here and i do that to my nurses but i want to say to you i am deeply humbled and you remind me so much of the physicians that i work with on a daily basis i think that just highlights having a strong and collaborative team at the table, it to me, it makes a really big difference. And so I appreciate and I'm humbled by your words and I thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Nadenoff. And I really appreciate that you took time to thank Liz and the other nurses because I think often society places doctors above nurses when in reality, the nurses are really the backbone of a hospital. I mean, I've seen from my shadowing experiences that nurses might know more than a resident or younger doctors. For all future nurses that are listening to this out there, find a physician team that supports you. It makes a huge difference. I just want to wrap up with a final question here. Um, so I want to ask each of you, um, including Dr. Bowers, what's one thing that you want to leave with our listeners here today who are, are quite worried about just the state of our health or just what our future is going to look like? Well, if I can start, I am not just hopeful, but entirely confident that we will continue to have amazing individuals who are working in healthcare. And I think that, uh, again, if I can take a little bit of a historical perspective, certainly um, healthcare and the practitioners of healthcare, there have been sort of waves uh, going through of 
how these health systems are organized and um, how people respond to their healthcare givers. But uh, there has always been, and there will continue to be, a very strong number of people who are drawn to this profession, who are consummate professionals and well-trained and who will you know, continue to uh, respond to these crises in entirely uh, effective and appropriate ways. So in terms of uh, who we have out there, the, the people who are practicing, however the structures might change and however uh, the shape of hospital organizations or insurance might change or, or other aspects, um, I, you know, one thing I find very, very uh, hopeful and reassuring is that we'll have the practitioners, we'll have the individuals there who can provide absolutely the best care. I think a big takeaway point, and we said it repeatedly throughout the conversation, is we have really complex problems here in year 2020. COVID-19 is one of many complex problems that were faced. And so the idea of one or two people making a discovery, those individuals on their own is sort of an antiquated idea because I think moving forward in the 21st century, we really need to capitalize on working as collective teams and groups. And even this is what a four-part series, you're talking medicine is just one section of this. There's other um, pieces of our life. So once we start thinking big picture and, and we stop thinking about like what Am I going to specifically do? I mean, that piece is important because you should contribute from your own individual level. But the more comfortable we are working with one another and working in big teams and having hard but necessary conversations, um, I just think only good things can happen with that. Those are great, great uh, comments. Um, I concur. And uh, it's great to have the optimistic view because I want to say that I want to acknowledge the suffering that we all are going through right now as, as human beings, I would say. I think this too will end. And I firmly believe in science. And I think science will give us the answers to defeat this threat that we are facing like it has many other times in the past. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Bowers, Liz, and Dr. Nadenoff for the whole discussion. It was really great to hear all of your perspectives on Missouri's healthcare, like during COVID and after COVID. And I think we as listeners could learn a lot from that. So thank you. This was wonderful, James. Thank you to your whole team and you for bringing us together and for me to learn about other people, you know, who are, uh, I mean, I know that, but it's good to connect like this. I'm very appreciative. And thank you for asking me and being part of this wonderful, wonderful discussion. Yes, I echo that as well. Thank you. I think that um, having the conversation is really important, and I feel really privileged to be a part of this one. So thank you for the invitation. And I'll third it. Thank you, James, for organizing this. It's, it's really delightful to be able to um, talk to some experts in, in other fields and to get some of these uh, direct perspectives. So it's been wonderful. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Futures podcast series. This podcast is produced by students in partnership with the University of Missouri Office of Student Engagement. Our editing is done by Hope Davis and James Kim, and the music is by DJ Williams. We'd like to say thank you again to our panelists for their time and insights. 
If you'd like to see more from them, you can check out the links in our description. Wherever you're listening, we hope you stay safe and healthy. Thank you.